Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo will address its own pomposity and its own damned righteousness with the help of the legendary Preston Sturgis. For all the messages that a picture can expound, our creative force for this evening did the noble task in 1941 of poking pretension and pomposity with a rather effective and hilarious stick. He created a picture so funny and so moving that it lingers on in our memories through its Influ- through those it's influenced and even those that are the butt of the joke to this day. In the spirit of that sentiment, the Ballyhoo dedicates this show the same way the folks in the picture dedicate the film. It goes to the memory of those who made us laugh. The mo- motley mountebanks, the, co- the clowns, the buffoons in all times and all nations, whose efforts have lightened our burden a little. And no story could carry the promise of that sentiment better than John L. Sullivan's travails through Depression-era woes in the hopes of high art in 1941's Sullivan's Travel. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. to be in trouble without friends without credit without checkbook without name alone and i'll go with you how could i be alone if you're with me sullivan's travels the side-splitting story of a four thousand dollar a week big shot who turns hobo for experience and gets more than he bargained for you better drop me at the next corner and take this bus back where you stole it from don't talk nonsense i left a note saying i was taking the car or did i be nice if you could remember. What do you suppose that is? Well, whatever it is, there's absolutely nothing they can do. Remember that. What did you say? I said there's absolutely nothing they can do.
now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, Preston Sturgis, an artist who may have laughed at that very moniker, was the talk of the town in the early 40s with a slew of streamlined hits such as The Great McGinty all the way down to The Lady Eve. But in late 1941, he premiered a film that played insider baseball with a self-awareness that may have rubbed critics of the air the wrong way. But it has gone through the decades as a superb picture that holds a mirror up to pompacity without fully scolding it. From its stark depiction of the horrors of the Depression to the light that can be found in the dark by those who experience it more than Sullivan himself, the picture contains a spirit that dominates today in the works of many beyond just auteurs and film school affectionates. We shall try and dissect, to dissect this stunning snap at the industry, but we cannot do it alone. With us today is a professor of the radio and television and film department at the University of Texas, Austin, whose dedication to the study of film and art gone by has led to a stellar foray of work by herself as an author, including such titles as Hollywood in the Neighborhood and At the Picture Show, which cover the fandom of film and the habits of filmgoers of an era gone by. Her work e went even further when she took on the mighty task of explaining to us all the importance of Jack Benny with Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy. She is also the star of the Jack Benny film panel that you heard on this feed a month back, and she is here with us today. Please welcome to the program Catherine, Catherine Fuller Seeley. <laughs> Thank you so much, Zach. <laughs> Welcome, Kathy. You're here. Hooray! <laughs> In these COVID times, glad to be anywhere. Yes, so. absolutely. Oh, yeah, especially. Well, the... the the, the the audience listening in may not know because at this point the panel that we did together at the Jack Benny convention will have been released as an, an audio form um, but you you went through quite a harrowing experience because <laughs> when that happened was the basically I, I guess it was the beginnings of what ended up being a terrible s snowstorm and winter storm for you guys over there in Texas. It, it was a really crazy week, indeed. So for the, the panel we did together, I ended up on my cell phone sitting outside of a, uh, my house that had lost power and water and internet. And, and I was so reduced to that. And we remain, remained that way. Well, uh, uh, it took me three weeks to get the internet back. But uh, when, you're, when you're reduced to um, shoveling snow to melt on your gas stove to use in the bathroom, mm -hmm. you know... You know, that's uh, you've left the modern world behind. Exactly. So. All the power has gone down. We are we, we well, are hungry yeah. like the wolf once again because we have to. Well, there you go. <laughs> but it does remind me of the scene in um, Sullivan's Travels where the um, everybody in the RV is, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, is being tossed about. Yeah, that's kind of all, so. all, all in the all in the pursuit of trying to expound upon art. <laughs> We're all just like scuffling around in the back of our respective vans. <laughs> Or as he as he calls it, a land yacht, a land yacht, which I, <laughs> I, I do, I, I do, like I, I, I'm not like I never. There are folks around my age range who might laugh at the language that's used in older films, like the the slang and whatnot. I don't tend to do it, but when I heard land yacht rewatching it, I was like, oh yeah, that's <laughs> that wouldn't fly today. <laughs> very large. It was a very. We call large. it a party bus now. <laughs> Um, but uh, first of all, so this is technically not your first time with the Ballyhoo as since the panel was released, so that I cheated. But uh, but I do want you to introduce yourself to the audience here a little bit. Now you are a professor at the University of Texas Austin, where you yes, yes, and you and yeah, you've got your you've got your shirt. You're wearing your colors proud, and. What I wanted to ask you about, because like we've talked about Jack Benny on this show a lot, and I will obviously ask you a Jack Benny question, but I wanted to ask you 
a little bit more about the other books that you've written um, because I feel like they sure. do end up pertaining uh, ha- interestingly into how we discuss a film like Sullivan's Travels. But you did books called Hollywood in the Neighborhood and At the Picture Show. Can you expound for the audience what what those studies ended up becoming? Well, well, well sure, and that's very kind of you to ask. My training's in American social and cultural history, not media studies per se. So I've always been very interested in the way uh, uh, media impacts real people. Mm-hmm. So um, at the picture show had been my dissertation, and I was very interested in the sort of rise of movie fan culture and its its very rapid spread across the United States um, that was largely rural. I mean, there, there were, I mean, stark uh, differences between urban audiences, the immigrants of big cities who were known to go to those nickel theaters when the movies started, and, and people who lived in villages of 2,500 people and less all across the country, the, major, the vast majority of any um, uh, examinations of early film audiences or impact of film was about those urban audiences. And uh, I'm uh, finding evidence like picture postcards of, of uh, uh, small towns across the country with dirt streets, and yet every little town had a nickel theater with a few bright lights on the front. And so I wanted to investigate the ways that um, uh, movie culture could spread across great distances. And it turned out it was the theater managers who um, gave me a voice because um, back in the day, there weren't big chains. They were all mom and pop businesses, Mm -hmm. 10,000 of them or more. And um, these people who ran the little movie theaters had, you know, they were in between trying to get the movies, show the movies, defend them to their community, but also um, take the um, the desires and preferences of their patrons and try and take that back to the film industry. So I really, uh, 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 my uh, research was not so much about films themselves, but about this kind of discourse, these, these kind of discussions and issues that folks like mo- early movie fans might raise in the earliest fan magazines, or that these movie theater owners and managers would raise in pay- and things like the early trade journals. Mm-hmm. So my, my work is very much sort of uh, based on the, um, uh, the papers, the business records, the discussions that uh, these that uh, audiences and theater owners would have uh, in places where they could talk uh, what they wanted to see in a Hollywood movie, what they what they loved, what they objected to, what you know um, their fandom and their concerns. That what I and I find that fascinating in, because of the fact that I worked in a movie I worked in a movie theater for five years, or well, I guess five and a half years because wow. I, I worked in two different chains. Um, when I was go- out, still in high school and in early college, and I found it interesting because uh, uh, I'm looking at it from the perspective of a chain, a huge chain, where their their ability to pick what they want to show is not really in uh, not really in play. Mm-hmm. What a study like yours does does point to the fact that even though they were more mom and pop independently owned these these intermediary discussions between different uh theater owners and to the community which is i think i feel like that's something that doesn't have the same modern equivalent of like the audience 
directly telling the theater what they want to see like that now it's a chain they they are booked with whatever the studio is giving them or what yeah. they you know choose to step outside of every so often um i know yeah. some theaters now show ba- they a lot of them show bollywood pictures now because there is a demanding audience for it and yeah. and it's good that they have that market um and also the idea of having to defend films to a community which is <laughs> i mean i think that that's a, that's a that's a is that a is that a result primarily of the different outrages that might come from censorship or is that just kind of a generalized, uh, you know, that's, it comes from lots of, of, of ways, you know, that parents worried about what their children are seeing a uh, religious groups, you know, cause it, so there's, you know, there's somebody's, uh, Oh Lord. Um, there's a, there was a marvelous example in the short, in the early 1970s during the short window in which X rated films actually saw popularity at, at big screen movie theaters, you know, <laughs> Debbie does Dallas and deep throat and um, a, a poor theater managers trying to, cause the, it was a hit thing for young couples right. to go experience this. And yet, you know, then other people are like, ah, you get, you know, so it was sort of free speech and freedom of expression. And it kind of, it was, you know, um, versus people going, no, the children. And well, the, say, you mother, know, this is too sexy to show to anybody. This has to go. <laughs> and, um, and now, so within those studies, though, you are not just a, an, 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 an analytical, uh, uh, figure when it comes to the trends of a business world you are also a fan of material and i know as as well as anybody that you are a fan of mr jack benny who is a frequent talking point on this show because what other golden age hollywood podcast is really going to do this i don't think any of them are going to do it uh Um, it gets to be your thing exactly but so the book that you've done two books on jack one of them a traditional study and the other one I think is directly, I, I, it really does pertain to something like what we expound upon on this show, which is preservation. Um, you mm-hmm. dug up some of Jack's old scripts with Harry Kahn, didn't you? <laughs> well, yeah, I, it's a project I'd really been wanting to publish for at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the fact that, you know, that's especially in this digital age that we have access to about 700 to 750 of Jack Benny's uh, radio episodes, which is just simply amazing. Mm-hmm. The fans, because it wasn't Benny himself, it wasn't NBC or CBS, you know, it wasn't the sponsor. It actually, for the ex- existing radio episodes, it was fans dumpster diving to get those transcription discs and then starting to preserve and share them. So we're incredibly lucky, but I always wondered, being a historian and interested in the origins of things, um, what about those earliest shows? And it's real easy to dismiss them because we haven't heard them and they're early and, you know, that's we, but um, the chance to go five floors into the bowels uh, of the basement uh, of the UCLA library to be able to call up, they have to haul them from an off uh, campus location and get to see the original scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, one copy of each of the original scripts Jack and his uh, 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 staff and his secretary saved in sort of bound book form. Um, getting to see those for the first time, uh, which I first did in like 2012, was a revelation because here was the Jack of Vaudeville sort of um, um, uh, uh, 
um, what I'm going to say, suddenly uh, finding himself in a new medium where you can see almost hear, see and hear his anxiety about this is different from vaudeville because you need me to say something new. Oh, I've got I've used up all my jokes in the first three shows that were the jokes I've developed over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And yet I got he was on twice a week back in the day. And so that that um, you you really sense uh, um, radio's demand for new material and the way it ate through things. And it was not how Jack was used to operating. And then, um, uh, you you know, he gets his uh, he hires a writer, Harry Kahn, and the two of them. Because Khan had done some work for him in the past. And the two of them then developed this way of how do you deal with the constant pressure to come up with new material? How do you be live? How do you be different? How do you be conversational? Instead of instead of just sort of going through a catalog, a joke book, and reading one joke, and then reading the next joke, and then reading the third joke yeah. that some other comedians were doing. You know, how do you adapt to this sort of new medium? Uh, it was delightful to find out. And then I said, very few people have ever been. A- it's very difficult to get to see these scripts. What if I could find a way to get them out where more people could read them and, and then um, uh, reconsider uh, uh, Jack's early career? Uh, yeah. Bless her heart, Barbara Fennell, one of the ultimate be- Betty fans of all time, finds them boring. <laughs> and I said that's quite over. It's perfectly within your rights to find them boring. And it there was a difference between reading them versus what they would be like to hear the radio recording because you find out with any Jack Benny script, it's kind of yeah, all right on the paper, but then when you get the timing and the inflections and the voice and the you know that's. Um, uh, the actual recordings and performances are so marvelous. But if you're willing to suspend your disbelief or if you could hear the voices in your head, because mm-hmm. it's undoubtedly Jack Benny on the page. Yeah. And these things are marvelous to listen to and what, I mean, to read. And what's interesting. So. Well, and I and I picked it up recently and I in sifting through it. It was interesting to look at. It was interesting to see this interme this this interprocess between the vaudeville persona and what would become the radio persona that we know and i do find it i find it i mean it's been relevant to my obsessions with the film career but it also primarily put into perspective the amount of time it took to build because when you listen to the canada dry years or even the chevrolet years there's uh, a tendency. I, I I I understand why there's a tendency to toss it under the bus, but I I've had to adapt to a mode of thinking of like, okay, you're not you're not getting a uh, you're not getting Phil, you're not getting Dennis, you're not getting Frank Nelson, you're not getting Mel Blanc. Meet this on its terms, and I usually do yeah. that with films anyway because it's the only way you should meet a film is on its terms. You can't you can't expect anything out of a piece of art that you didn't create. You've got to walk right. in with a little bit of leeway right. to the uh, to the piece of art itself. And I find those scripts to be very amusing considering the fact that this is this is before Jack starts getting a, a, a larger writer's room, whether it's through Bar- Morrow and Boulogne or then eventually the big four with Perrin, Balls, mm-hmm. or Tackerberry and Josephberg. And so to watch what two men were developing in these early years is very, very fascinating. You're, you're going to love, by the time we get to 34, mm-hmm. the um, um, the Jell-O scripts, the early Jell-O scripts are, are fascinating. Really, Harry Khan is on such a roll. Um, and uh, even uh, 
they're on such a roll of Mary has an active role. Uh, she's not just dour and they're doing lots of film parodies. And it's, um, you know, once they get the sort of gang rolling and they couldn't do that. If you think before the Jello show, he'd had 10 announcers, 10 different band leaders. You know, I mean, so because these changes of sponsors and his moving back and forth, every time he went to California to make a film, he'd have to leave the band behind in New York because they couldn't make enough money just performing on his show. They had to have constant gigs through the week mm -hmm. and they played on other shows. So you had to, you know, every time. So it, it's very for Jack to be able to fulfill his own career of wanting to be in movies. The radio things had to suffer. Yeah, and that's and and, and what you do see. I was gonna say you you do see that where that suffering lies, but then you start seeing the shift, and you start seeing yeah. where the radio becomes the much more important uh, concept within all of this. And uh, so, yes, and that, yeah, I was gonna say absolutely. I was gonna ask you. You've got the first volume out, and you're now working on volume two. How how many for for perspective? How many scripts are there that were that are only in script form that we don't have a broadcast version of or a recording of? It's about 200, but between a number like 250. Okay, so, um, so that's still a lot to go through. That That's astounding. Uh, it, it is, but these are in the uh, Canada dry years, he was on twice a week. So that's how you get so many scripts in the first between May and January 1933. Starting in March 1933, he's on once a week. But as the script will grow longer, here's the publishing part. Um, I could uh, uh, the script will start to grow longer, starting with Chevrolet and General Tire, because they cut the number of numbers as the shift of the show becomes a comedy show with a bit of music instead of sort of 50 50 music and comedy. It's going to mean longer scripts. And so that's going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to sort of throw myself on the mercy of Ben Omar, my publisher, <laughs> to see how are we going to squeeze these things together to not have it come out looking like a big phone book or or the Sears Wish catalog or something like that. He just so. looks at it and goes like, well, I've always wanted a Lord of the Rings trilogy. I just didn't expect it to be this. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, exactly. I don't want to, I don't want to draw it out so much that people get fatigued, mm -hmm. you know, and go, Oh, who wants volume 23? Well, you know, I but, do, but, <laughs> but, but I, I promise you things, they keep changing and they get really interesting. You'll be intrigued by, um, Frank Parker, who comes along in the, I believe in the Chevy years, and he they develop quite a character for him. So, mm -hmm. so every once you get, if once you as you say you drill down and get into it, each sort of period has some a very funny elements to it. And so, I like uh, tracking Frank Parker from Jack, then going into like a, a small stint on Burns and Allen, and just seeing where that oh, wow. that fun. That fun lies because he, um, in the Gracie running for president uh, run of their show, she talks about going on the various different shows to announce her candidacy for president, um, which is, if anybody out here doesn't know what I'm talking about, Gracie Allen, uh, in the years before Burns and Allen were a sitcom format, they were primarily a variety-esque show, 
and one of the jokes on one of the week's episodes involved Gracie running for president, and it was a joke that was carried on for weeks to the point of her getting actual votes. And I can't remember if it was a straw poll or whatever, but it was like she got actual votes for president. And the but Frank Parker kind of like she mentions going on Jack's program and I believe Frank is addressing Dennis Day in particular and I'm oh, like wow. that's interesting I and and I always like hearing the people who've left one show come back on the show or address the other artist Kenny Baker mm-hmm. with Jack and Fred is very interesting yeah. to hear mm-hmm. to hear that interplay um but we could be here with Benny all day but we've got to talk about a, a very special man, a very special artist. Um, his name's John L. Sullivan, and he's and he's desperate to stop making silly pictures, Kathy. <laughs> no, no more hey 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 in the haylock. Yes, so, no more uh, hey, no more ants in the plants in 1939. He's not he he's not gonna do ants in the plants in 1941, because he he understands that repetition grow, grow you can grow fatigue. It's similar to why John Favreau probably didn't direct Iron Man three. He's just like, no, 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 two's enough. I'll just act this time. But <laughs> um, so we were talking a little bit before the recording, and I kind of wanted you to reiterate it to me, or to, to the audience, and to myself. You actually teach Sullivan's travels in your courses, um, and I'm curious to see to know how do students react to this film when they watch it for the first time. Uh, they're pleasantly. Uh, uh, pleasantly shocked. Um, undergraduates today, especially film majors, you know, think they know everything about old Hollywood history and they can just dismiss it. It's it's boring, it's old, it's stilted, it's, you know, whatever. Oh, so, I'm going to smack them. <laughs> oh, well, you know, that's, you know, that's... Uh, but Sullivan's travels just amazes them. It seems to them so much more fresh mm-hmm. than than other sort of Hollywood films of the age. They love the fact that it's about um, uh, someone. What you know? I mean, it, it, in their inner hearts, they all want to be you know the next uh, a dramatic filmmaker. You know, if they don't want to be Quentin Tarantino or Steven Spielberg, you know, they they want to win their Oscar for, And so um, they find themselves sort of understanding and rooting for John L. Sullivan. Um, they're, uh, the slapstick takes them unawares. And then the switch in the, in the latter part of the film to suddenly become sort of a dramatic and that kind of 30s, almost documentary style sort of melodrama sort of shocks them. And then the ending just blows them away. Uh, plus the fact that then this, especially 10, 20 years ago, um, uh, they were, they're thrilled to see the, uh, uh, that the film he chose that he, John L. Sullivan wanted to make was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. And when the Oh Brother, There Art Thou film came out, they were looking for con- connections and suddenly an old Hollywood film was interesting again for that reason. Which too, I'm, so. which I'm glad you brought that up because that's how I found out about Sullivan's travels. Um, my experience with golden age Hollywood has uh, started off with a limited scope that pertained to radio initially, although Casablanca was an early entry point in my life and gangster films. And actually when you, in bringing up, the the documentary-esque style films of the era of the 30s era um my when i was re-watching this film my mind uh met, went immediately to i'm a fugitive from a chain gang um which exactly. is basically sturgis is doing a 
I want to say like what 15 minute version of the movie yeah, <laughs> um, stuck exactly. in his comedy. And, uh, but Oh brother, where art thou was my entry point because my father loves that movie. That is his favorite film. And, oh, and he, uh, and he got me into the Coen brothers. And then I saw Sullivan's travels after reading that it was influenced. Uh, it, it influenced our brother where art thou in a multitude of ways. And part of the joke is, is that they're making the movie that John L. Sullivan was trying to make. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. When I watched it the first time, I was amazed by it, but I didn't stick with it as long as I should have, and I didn't stick with Preston Sturgis. I regret yep. that, and I'm going to work on rectifying that because Sturgis had an amazingly interesting career as a filmmaker, and Sullivan's Travels, I wouldn't say it's a testament film, but it's a definitely a film where... If he's putting anything of his direct experience on screen, it's here. Um, and mm -hmm. that comes obviously with the connotation of the fact that, well, we are talking about a Hollywood story. Uh, mm -hmm. And something that I find interesting about how an artist would watch the film, when I was younger watching it, uh, I did find myself rooting for Sullivan's artistic integrity when I watch it now, I look at it through this objective third lens of like, well, th this is an interesting look at a man who doesn't understand what power he has in his hands to mold ideas through the humor he's already using. He doesn't need to go to full drama. But I think that the beauty of the film is that it can kind of alter your perception of how you view the film industry then and now, depending on what your mood is. Um, and uh, the the connections to the Coen brothers in this film don't just come from a brother where art though. I saw, uh, I saw it very at the very least one in the recent rewatch where I'm like, Oh, that's right. They did do that. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit when we go through the plot a bit, but let's talk a bit about Preston Sturgis. Um, I think you may be even more learned on this than I am, Kathy. So bear with me. I, 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 I don't, that much, I think. I that's. I think I read his autobiography about uh, uh, with his straight the mother, uh, very artistic mother he had. His yeah, sort of peripatetic childhood in in that way. So, but you may know more than me. Well, so. uh, well, the beauty of Criterion's edition of this is that they also have a PBS documentary attached to the film that um, gives a. Uh, uh, an hour and 15 minute uh, summation of Sturgis's career, but he was born in Chicago, the son of Mary Estelle Dempsey uh, and a traveling salesman named Edmund C. Biden. Um, but then he is adopted um, by Dempsey's uh, third husband, the wealthy stockbroker Solomon Sturgis. Um, and he frequents between Chicago and Paris. He seems to more prefer hanging out in America than in Europe. And the environment that he grows up in is is rather uh, is rather well to do, but he doesn't um, he doesn't like the stuffiness uh, that surrounds him. Um, he goes through a series of jobs before, while convalescing during appendicitis, reading a book on writing stage drama, and ends up writing a play called Strictly Dishonorable. Um, well, he first does a one called The Guinea Pig, which opens in Massachusetts. Um, but this second one, Strictly Dishonorable, was written in six days, and this play ran for wow. 16 months 
at the thing it was a big hit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and this is and this is where the depression kicks in because this play was released uh, not too long before the depression fully kicked in. So he's experiencing a hit in a time when it's more than likely that there would have been no reason for it to succeed. And the, the, the need for money and the lack of plays being a hit going forward, he spent a lot of his advance or his, uh, his earnings from Strictly Dishonorable already. So he accepted a job at Universal. He then moved from Universal to uh, Paramount Pictures. And he starts writing several scripts for him. He, La- Jesse Lasky at Fox bought a script from him. He paid $17,500 plus 7% of the profits above $1 million. That is insane for a writer because I, 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 I think writers are more respected today and can command that salary. At the time, if we're to keep, I guess I would ask the audience to keep in mind that writers were treated not like cattle, but they were, they, th- as for how much they were bringing to the process, they were, they were easily among the most disrespected. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Because they are cranking them out in a factory mentality. So an individual voice like Sturgis is not received well by other studios, but more specifically also other writers grow jealous of that. Um, And I can imagine that a lot of the self-loathing that I can see stuck in Sullivan's travels comes from being aware of where he is Mm -hmm. in the industry. Um, Mm -hmm. It may not be the most apparent, but it's there. And he keeps working through the studio system until finally he puts all of his chips on the table. He's earning $2,500 a week. He's uh, he's enjoying a, a, a better affluent lifestyle, getting into ventures at, like restaurants and owning boats, but uh, he is unhappy with the way directors are handling his dialogue. Amongst the people that he actually had an issue with were Mitch Lyson, uh, who oh. apparently... Well, uh, uh, remember the night, um, uh, which is a movie that I do love. He and I got exposed to uh, last year with our film club. Um, he, he, he. Amongst the complaints he had for Lyson in films like that is that like he would, he would cut the dialogue that should have stayed there, and he would not cut the dialogue that should have been removed. <laughs> so Sturgis is this very. Uh, I, there's there, there's a there's a lot of like there seems to be a lot of pretentiousness for a man who is does not who disdains pretension. <laughs> so he's a walking contradiction that I don't like admonish. I really I really appreciate his point of view because he he seems to wrestle with it rather than just blindly shove it to the side going uh-huh. like no 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 no. I'm a suffering artist. And it's like, no, 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 no. I'm fully aware that this is a contradiction and the whole world is a joke. (laughs) Um, And so he puts his chips on the table with Paramount, Kathy, and he goes, look, I'm going to, I want to direct. And Paramount was like, excuse me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're a writer, right? Yeah, he's like, you heard me. I want to write direct. Now, this is something I, 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 I wanted to like throw out there to people because I'm going to be doing a John Houston series later in the year. Um, John Houston is among this triage of people that come in 
in the late 30s, early 40s as writer-directors who prove their worth in that dual role. Sturgis, I think, is kind of the trailblazer for it because he does a film called The Great McGinty. And this is a year before this is at least a year before John Huston introduced us to the Blackbird for a third time because if I in case I need to remind the audience the Maltese Falcon is a third re, uh, is a is a second remake of a property that had been done two times before so stop making fun of remakes. Anyway, um Sturgis though, he he wins big with the Great McGinty which ends up being a political satire centered around a guy who goes from the bottom to the top all the way back down to the bottom and he wins the Oscar for original screenplay for the great McGinty and he receives two other nominations um, within the forties for hail the conquering hero and the miracle of Morgan's Creek. So everybody does love him as a writer Um, in the same year. He also makes uh, the lady Eve uh, and I believe it is Christmas in July. This like within the span of 40 to 41, he makes these movies and then Sullivan's travels ends up being the culmination point. And I was going to ask you, Kathy, this is a film that's being made not after the depression because the depression is technically still going on. But how do you feel that this film uh, feels about the depression. It, it's a weird question to ask, but it's just like because the film. No, no. Well, as I said, I, I, I use it. I, I, I've used it with undergraduates and, of course, on the Great Depression, um, because uh, I, uh, the 1930s was full of contradictions, as you were saying that Sturgis was full of contradictions. The movies were as much about as many about silly escape. Uh, and movies about rich people as much as these pioneer, you know, uh, uh, sort of Frank Capra or uh, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang uh, uh, type of movies about poverty. Um, the depression did not hit everyone equally. Some people, the rich, some were still rich. Um, a, a few people made it rich during the 30s. So many people suffered. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, capitalism was on the verge of collapse, and yet advertisers uh, had to adapt to these strange times. And so uh, there's a marvelous book called Advertising the American Dream by Roland Marchand that explains these 30s contradictions to me by the fact that even product advertisers, and I would say Hollywood too, had found ways of, because uh, the country could have erupted in revolution, you know, kill all the rich people, steal all their money. But in the 1930s, especially Marchand talks about, you could see Hollywood finding ways of 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 using sort of escapism to help the uh, the poor benighted people feel that uh, uh, it's it's um, you know with the luck of the draw and a, winning a lottery ticket, you too could be rich, mm-hmm. or that the things that were fundamentally um, worthwhile, like like love, like companionship. Um, uh, uh, the rich people couldn't do any better than poor people, and that, that that essentially we were all the same. So if they could both make fun of rich people and things like screwball comedies, mm-hmm. but uh, also still want to admire them instead of kill them, find ways in which oh they do know better and they will help, you know, uh, spread the good word. They will take care of us. They'll all be sort of Franklin Roosevelt kind of rich people, which is rather. Um... Than 
which is something that we talked about a couple episodes back. We did the great, uh, I'm done, not, not the great Godfrey, my man Godfrey. <laughs> I'm thinking the great McGinty. Yes. Um, but yeah, my man Godfrey was an interesting discussion to have with my guest Phil because, uh, the well, the, the criterion on that actually expounds on this beautifully about the three key directors within the screwball realm being McCary, Capra, and LaCava. And mm-hmm. they described it as such that McCary was on the right, LaCava's on the left, and Capra's in the middle. And LaCava being on the left on there, people gave him crap for uh, apparently uh, basically pulling the reins in by the time the movie ends because it does seem like, well, you know, the rich people don't get what they deserve, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And and we looked at it from the humanist point of view about how the depression f- affected everybody in various different forms. And it's interesting that Sullivan's Travels is a film that addresses that inequality but is not interested in finding an answer it per se because right. it, it deals more with the emotion people feel rather than a practical answer to economic strife. Um, And I was curious about this clarifying this because there's a myth or a legend about how film in depression era in the depression era was booming. Whereas the, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, uh, whereas everything else was suffering, like film was touted to be like a big, business right. that thrived it, it, during the depression yeah it, it turned out not to be true of um of, of others of my research found that behind the scenes um uh, a movie attend half of all 40 percent of all american movie theaters closed and if we're talking between 31 and 34 uh, yeah. you know attendance plummeted profits plummeted alls to paramount and many other studios were going bankrupt um, but Hollywood didn't want to let that be known. So they, they kept all this information. Hush, hush, hush. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in their desperation, this is where the worst of the, the craziest of the pre-code movies start selling, you know, prostitutes as heroin and gangsters as heroes, <laughs> um, bringing censorship pressures on them. So, you know, as I said, they're trying to fight back and bring people back to the movies uh, uh, and then movie theater owners themselves thinking Hollywood is just giving us movies that will bring the censors down on us they start having dish night giveaways and other kinds of things mm-hmm. to say please there's value here so um no uh hollywood wasn't making money hand over fist they did rebound uh, uh as the depression started uh, lessening but but kind of like what i worry and why i'm going to teach my depression course again something that could happen is we could remain in a permanent recession yeah. You know, that things will go on and on and never get any. They'll recover to some extent, as did the U.S. economy by like 1937. But it was never that, you know, what I mean, so mm-hmm. it was just, oh, remember, our, our, I'll never earn that much money again. We'll never be that wealthy again. We'll never have this again. And that continues into 41. And it is truly only um, our participation in World War II that necessitated making all the war material that put suddenly put everybody back to work yeah and more um so uh that's the lingering depression aspect of even the early 40s plus the fears of oh my god the war you know i mean war is happening everywhere how long will it be till we're drawn into it so there's a lot of anxiety and fear but at the same time 
um, uh, Hollywood glamour is back in, you know, in fashion. And some people are still making money the way they always had. Yeah. And- but I want you to think the underlying tension and fear that uh, 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 sort of what's the John um, uh, 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 Grapes of Wrath. Yes. You know, that also came out in 1940. The, 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 you know, the, so those kind of, you know, fears that things will never get any better. Mm-hmm. The Okies will always have to be escaping from disaster. So yeah. these things are going on at the same time. Yeah. And that, so that's, I'm glad you clarified that because I think that it's, um, I think that the myth has been dispelled for the most part, but there's, there's still people I feel like understand that the, dep- that understand to their mind that the depression was a boom time for, for, for movies. And I mean, argue- well, well, you know, I mean, they, 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 there was a ton of, there was a ton of money made, but, and they, as I said, and, they felt it best to sell the glamour, mm-hmm. to sell the money, to sell the furs. Radio was also booming. Mm-hmm. And with all those people moving out to California, adding to the glamour and things like that. So, yep. yeah, Hollywood want, didn't want you to know that times were hard. Yeah. And, so, and, it, and it and I mean, I, it feels it feels like they still carry on that practice of uh, concealment. Um, I think it's come under different shadows. Uh, the more recent controversy surrounding Warner Brothers decision to dump a lot of titles to streaming amidst the pandemic um uh the way it was framed uh was an older tactic that doesn't work in social media today but that's a complicated issue that uh has a lot of tentacles attached to it um sure and a studio era film of this time because we are like th- the this film comes out at the cusp of World War II so it is mm-hmm. it is it's it's similar to to be or not to be in the respect that some part of it feels like it's ill timing to a degree. I'll be yeah. I'll be up front because I usually do this at the end of the show. I'm unsure how to read the numbers on this film because this movie did go over budget, but there are report of a 1.2 million dollars in US rentals. Um, as far as a variety report. So I'm not sure of the actual success of the film beyond... You know, that's not bad. In classic Hollywood days, other than an anomaly like Gone with the Wind, Mm -hmm. the best film would earn $2 million. The worst film would earn Mm $800,000. So, you know, I mean, it was a closed system back in the day. So I find box office figures of this period interesting, but you sort of have to think, you know, there was none. Uh, we're obsessed with the box office today. <laughs> a little but too much, so. <laughs> back in the day, it was a real close system. But also, for Hollywood films, they'd lost the European, you know, they'd lost all their foreign markets mm-hmm. by 1941. So you can't be making two million or two and a half million. Mm-hmm. You know, so. They've had to adjust uh, their expectations. And we're we're having to do the same thing with the theater closures. The expect exactly. The expectation of a of a system that was used to billion dollar grocers is suddenly finding that that's not an actual realistic number and that you shouldn't bank on that period but that's a different discussion for the other podcast that I do where I can rant and rave a little bit and sound like Lewis Black you know so the I think that uh something that Sullivan's travels finds in in an interest point for me is that because it as he's talking about the depression and as he is about to make this film Sturgis is among the highest paid creative forces in the industry at this point 
Paramount purchased this script for $6,000. <laughs> and this is also coming off of that success of Great McGinty. And we'll talk a little bit about the origin of this film. He had wanted to make this film as a response to the preaching he found in other comedies, which seemed to have abandoned the fun in favor of the message. Um, and it seems like almost like there is a direct response in sort of effect to a screwball comedy, like a my man, Godfrey or an awful truth coming out of Sturgis's mind where he's just like, Oh, these guys are, they're just lying to people. And, <laughs> and so he's wanting to put a realist spin on it. And what mm-hmm. he comes up with ends up being, I don't want to say an indictment of art snobbery, but it certainly holds it up to the fryer a little bit for, or to the grill a little bit for a little bit of grilling. And the, uh, it's part of this. We can start talking about the plot, but let's first bring up our two leads here because we're going to talk about a bunch of character actors too. One of whom is a God. Um, but because he's got, he's a mustache God, his name's Franklin Pangborn and he's amazing. And if I ever do a series on side characters, Franklin Pangborn will be number one, but we've got Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. Now on my previous show, the Shamley silhouette listeners will remember that I discussed Joel McRae in regards to a movie called foreign correspondent. But this is a man who is much more than just uh, the man who helped take down the uh, threats and uh, menace of Herbert Marshall and foreign correspondent. Um, He is an astute actor who worked the gamut through films with Sturgis beyond this film, like the Palm Beach story. Um, He was also in The Most Dangerous Game, (laughs) uh, which is a film that uh, I remember first seeing after immediately watching Zodiac and going, well, I've got to see the most dangerous game now. Um, and then Gregory LaCava, he worked with him for bed of roses in 1933. He worked with George Stevens for the more, the merrier. Um, and he was in Willie Wyler's these three come and get it. Um, he played Wyatt Earp, uh, in Wichita. And then he was in Sam Peckinpah's ride the high country as late as 1962 opposite Randolph Scott. Um, I feel like Joel McRae is an actor that should be more talked about, but it seems like nobody nobody's like actively out there to call him overrated or anything like that. But he's like he's so good, but he doesn't have the same iconoclastic look of a Grant or a Bogart or a Clark Gable. Um, I love him in this movie. I feel like he responds to Sturgis's material even better than he does to Hitchcock's material. And I love foreign correspondent, but he's, he's having fun here. He's having absolute fun. Um, the person who wasn't having fun on this film was Veronica Lake, (laughs) uh, who, um, Veronica Lake is an iconic actress whose iconography extends to this day to the point where there are Instagram pages dedicated to sharing photos of her as there are with many other, Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of these with Golden Age actresses and whatnot, but I noticed a lot of Veronica Lake ones, and I'm like, wow, really? Okay, that's that's neat, I guess. Um, I don't think Veronica Lake would have cared either way, but uh, <laughs> she uh, she, the, she is a interesting figure who has had trouble with the people she worked with. Uh, she's born Constance Frances Marie Ackelman in Brooklyn. Uh 
when she begins her film career, she's it starts by when the when her family moves to Beverly Hills, California, and she gets under contract to MGM and she enrolls in the studio's acting farm, the Bliss Hayden School of Acting, which is now the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Um, and she first appears in a play called Food for Thought, a Thought for Food. Um, and uh, an L.A. Times critic had called her a fetching little trick for her appearance in a play called She Made Her Bad. And then she works as an extra in movies uh, before she attracts the interest of Fred Wilcox. Um, and they test her for a movie called I Wanted Wings. And I Wanted Wings sends her off there. From there, she goes into films like China Pass and Blonde Venus. But instead, she chooses to go into Sullivan's Travels. So she's offered these other ones through Paramount, and then instead she's put into Preston Sturgis's film. Preston Sturgis found Veronica Lake through the normal casting process, but he had McRae in mind from the get-go for Sullivan. Um, and from all that I could find, it appears that, well, a couple of things happened with Veronica Lake. Number one, she was, um, she was pregnant at the time of filming. Um, and she apparently did not tell Preston Sturgis she was pregnant until uh, literally the moment they are about to start filming. And Sturgis was furious. Um, now, I've had discussions on this with Hitchcock before in regards to contextualizing it for the audience. It's, it's not, it, there's no excuse for a director having an outburst, period. You should not be doing it, uh, especially when it comes to a woman um, and especially when it comes to anybody, period. Uh, having said that, um, it's when we talked about it with Hitchcock, Vera Miles had kind of notified him pretty far in advance, which also led to the eventual recasting um, from Vertigo into Kim Novak. It seems like Lake was just so freaked out about it that she didn't know how to say anything to Sturgis, so that when she did, Sturgis was caught off guard. It I, it doesn't look good for him, um, but it was up to then costume designer genius Edith Head to hide a lot of these signs of pregnancy as filming commenced and utilizing body doubles as well. Um, but there was still friction and Veronica Lake has had more than one comment made about her in regards to, um, her demeanor on set. Um, and Joel McRae apparently did not like working with her to the point where, when he was offered another job working alongside of her, uh, I married a witch. Uh, he turned down, and Frederick March, uh, who ended up being the Mary, the lead in I Married a Witch, um, uh, did not get along with Veronica Lake either. Uh, if you talk about Veronica Lake in regards to her noir work, it seems like the people who worked with her didn't have a great time working with her either. So she's she's known as a difficult star. I don't know enough about her to wonder if some of this is of its era men and or other actors discussing a difficult actress without understanding any context in her life and also overblowing it in a way to torpedo somebody. Um, if there's any Veronica Lake experts out there who would like to clarify this for me, um, I will uh, I will automatically respond to your to your DM to me on Twitter. Um, 
And uh, but regardless, they are they do work well together. For any difficulty that Veronica Lake purportedly had, she does work as an actress in this movie. She does work as a star in this movie. She fits this role beautifully. Um, as does Sullivan. And we can kind of jump into the plot itself. Um, and we open up with that 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 lovely title card dedicated to the people who make us laugh. This picture's for you. And then we're thrown immediately into a harrowing Hitchcock-esque climax to a movie <laughs> or some kind of foreign thriller film. And then we are backed out to reveal that we are watching a movie with Sullivan and the studio heads. Um, these studio heads played by Robert Warwick and William Demarest. Uh, we get this whole scene that sets up the entire movie with Sullivan tired of making comedies. He is, it's like, it, it, for, for anybody who's wanting a modern context on this, if, jo- if Judd Apatow suddenly got very upset at a studio head because he wanted to make a World War II drama instead of making another Seth Rogen movie, that's the equivalent. Uh, of the argument at a basic boiling point. Um, and they keep trying to tell him, well, you don't you don't have experience with trouble. You don't have experience with hardship and woe. So John makes the decision, okay, I'm going to live as a hobo for, <laughs> for a few weeks and I'll experience hardship. And I, I will say that one of the reasons I'm glad you're here, Kathy, being a professor is that you are interacting with students of the, the, the generation that's coming after me, but we're in this realm where I'm still of a generation that's still taking, taking the lessons it learned a couple years back in college for however long we stayed there. Do the people who are maybe more film-oriented in your studies that are like trying to become filmmakers specifically, when they watch that, like do you do you see anybody snarking at Sullivan's attitude here (laughs) oh it's a yes it's a mix it's it's yeah buddy you don't know what you're talking about but then because Texas brings it the University of Texas brings in quite a range of students from very wealthy to the to a lot of first generation students um, 40% Latinx students, or, you know, lots of women. So um, there are already so many jokes going or, or attitudes going around among my young filmmakers about the, you know, the, 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 the young guys who are sure they're going to be the next Quentin Tarantino. They're going to be the next cool guy. And so the, there's a lot of, of, of laughing and discussion you know, uh, uh, laughing among them from those going, oh yeah, I've seen somebody like that before who's privileged and thinks it's so easy to just put on this other identity for a while. And other people then saying, oh, you don't know from, you know, hey, you faker, to, uh, you know, you know, so it's yeah. all these things together, and it, but it, it um, they they feel it personally through so their going their own journeys. That, that's so, uh, that's interesting to hear too, and I'm glad that it it does reaffirm that these are attitudes that permeate your youth, no matter where you are or where you're coming from. Oh yeah, and oh yeah. I I don't I'd be hard pressed to remember how I felt about where my desires went. I at the very le- I know I know one thing was I really wanted to make comedies and then ended up falling into drama territory, um, 
so much so that our mutual friend Hope was sad when she I ha- I was on her show all the classics um and uh which you've been on so you know what I'm talking about um and she was asking me about filmmaking and one of the things is I told her about like well I I've switched I I, I tried to do comedy and I couldn't really break it so I tried drama kind of on a whim and it ended up working for my sensibilities and she's like well it's just sad because we'll never see a Zach Eastman comedy and I'm like I don't think you want to I don't think you want to try with that one like I try to I I I mean and I and I and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that comedy it can be learned, but there is an innate talent behind it. Much mm-hmm. like what Sturgis has. He has an innate ability to slyly comment on the language around him and the language of the people that he's surrounded by combined with the society that he lives in at this time, which feels like it's not too dissimilar from the one we're experiencing now. Sure. And that- and and somebody, I, I, I'm trying to remember, somebody said this in the documentary about like how dialogue was a precious commodity, especially in early talking films. And Sturgis is delivering on this dialogue promise. And it's, it's just great. It's so rapid and so listenable. And mm-hmm. so it's just, yeah, to me, it seems very fresh as compo as opposed to some other films of the, of the, of the era. Yeah. So, um, and what's more the dialogue. I, I, I swear to God, guys, I'm not going to make this the Coen brothers hour. But I'm kind of going to do it because those two brothers who have never made a bad movie, by the way, I'll keep saying that intolerable cruelty is not bad guys. You're just watching it wrong. Um, But um, there's a, there's a trick that I noticed and noticed in their films when I first started getting into them is that they, in the middle of a heated scene, they'll have somebody say the same line three times. It's usually only three times hits on that note. In this particular instance, the one I notice it immediately is that, but with sex in it, because the studio heads are going like, give us sex. <laughs> and yep. poor John, you know, I, I do feel for John in this respect. It's just like, guys, it doesn't always have to be that. But he is uh, he is acquiescing in different forms or fashions. And then something interesting happens in that scene, too, where the his two studio exec bosses, uh, Mr. LeBrand and Mr. Jonas, they flat out, uh, they flat out tell him not only does he not know hardship, but they then relate their experience. And so immediately Sturgis is commenting on the actual hardships that studio heads had informing these studios. So it's not even just the Adolf Zuckers that he's working directly under. I got shades of Jack Warner in here. I got shades of other people who worked up this ladder of building these studios and then hiring people who come out of privilege to create mm-hmm. their art for them. And I found the, the, the contrast stunning. I feel like, and I don't know if I can... I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but it seems like it seems like, and the commentary kind of, or not the commentary, but one of the essays kind of backs into this is that it's a movie making fun of Hollywood that is picking a safe target in the form of the director. (laughs) And the only reason why it still bites to this day is because film discussion has evolved into weird, weird things on amongst other things, Twitter in the regards of art versus commerce, art versus blockbuster, 
uh, streaming mm. versus theatrical. Um, so it's not like the bad and the beautiful where you have a, um, uh, a, a dig at a David O. Selznick or a Val Luton. You have something entirely different. Um, and so I feel like this is, it's not a safe movie by any stretch, but it is interesting how Sturgis was sneaky enough to get away with stuff that the studios might've said, Oh no, 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 you're not doing this yeah. at all. Um, and, um, and then as he goes on his travails, he uh, he well first of all he gets a ride with a very cute kid in a in a in a made-up tank <laughs> uh who he says he's gonna be a uh I, I wrote this down because i wanted to make sure that i didn't forget what this kid wants to be when he grows up <laughs> uh he uh kid he wants to be a whippet tanker <laughs> which i have no idea what that is <laughs> but i i'd be i'd be I'd be curious to know how that kid ended up going through World War II or Korea, I guess more Korea because he's that young. He would have been going through Korea. Um, and as he goes through his um, – as he's getting ready for his journey, by the way, um, we we get a an actor that I haven't seen in a lot of movies, but I recognized him immediately because he's Hives the butler in Animal Crackers. Um, this is uh, Robert Grieg, uh, who mainly did play these dutiful butler fil- butler roles. But Animal Crackers, I'll always remember because he's the one who prepares everybody for like, brace yourselves, Captain Spaulding's coming, <laughs> and you you better not mess up. So, uh, so watching these small character actors, it seems like Sturgis was better than most at inserting these small disparate character actors. Lubitsch, I think also does this too very well because he has his regular stock players with amongst others, Felix Braceart. Um, I feel like uh, Sturgis does the American version of that um, where he's tapping into a slew of comic talent that doesn't always get its due. Not the least of which is my favorite, Mr. Franklin Pangborn. <laughs> Um, I, I want to ask a question, Kathy, that I think you may not, uh, you may not know the answer to it and it would be totally fine because I feel like we've seen him always. Do you know your first Franklin Pangborn movie? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I guess he's just always been there. That, so I, the only reason that I can remember distinctly where I saw him first is because of, uh, Jack. Because the first time I saw him was The Horn Blows at Midnight. That's the first time that I recall yeah, who is go. who is this guy with the mustache who looks like he's about to fuse like Gail Gordon, but simmers back enough to not be Gail Gordon. <laughs> uh, and from here, we get him on his journey. And he comes across these... But it, right before that, with the, um, with the, 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 the servants... The most isn't that where the important line comes in? Is it there where, or is it later where they say, um, you know, a uh, 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 poverty is not to be, uh, you know, don't 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 make movies about poverty. Poor people don't want to, uh, you know, um, see that they, you know. Yeah, I think. Well, it, it, it's a phrase that. that if, I think it permeates the movie in different sections. I I yeah, know it's it, just the the one where the uh, you know they're the um uh, his valets are looking at his at oh the, yes yes the whole outfit yes and, and the, 
They're saying I disapprove. Yeah, because because uh, uh, Robert Greek's uh, Butler character, he alludes to the fact that these people live enough hardship they don't need to be made fun of, and he alludes to the fact that somebody he two people he knew did this exact same thing and were never seen again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which I'm just like, and he says this was in 1912 and I'm just like, well, what would you yeah. hold on? Hold, hold the phone. Yeah. They did. They, they, they did. They become hobos or did the hobos kill them? I, I need to know. <laughs> it's a great little, so. it's a side they, bit. No. It's a great yeah. joke that then expires 1500. What if scenarios in my head of like, what did happen to him? Yeah. An, yeah. Another one that does is among the first people that Sullivan works for on his hobo journey are these these widow uh ladies <laughs> i i can't tell i think they're in a boarding they run a they I, they either run a boarding house no. or something no 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 i think it's the two of them uh, it's like a widow and her sister and they're both sex crazed yes and they just sort of you know that's uh man yeah and, uh, the 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 bit that we get we we get two cohen brothers homages in the span of this chunk the first that we get is the movie theater scene, um, which there are a couple of movie theater scenes in this film or screening scenes in this film, which if everybody remembers, Oh brother, where art thou? One of the funniest, one of the many funniest moments in the film is uh, uh, Everett and Delmer are in the uh, theater watching a movie uh, talking about the fact that Everett has just lost the affection of his wife that he, that he, left. he got kicked out of Woolworths guys. Um, and, uh, the, the prisoners, uh, on the chain gang are brought into the movie and Pete tells them, do not seek the treasure, uh, yeah. the lighting yeah. and the scheme of it. Like it's clear that Deacon's, even if he wasn't set told to watch Sullivan's travels, he understood how to light these particular depression era movie theater moments because it it's like you, I could put them side by side and get the same feel. And one's in black and white and one is in very, very stark color. Albeit with that washout look that Deacons is going for. Um, but the other one is so these, these, this widow and her sister character, the widow had a husband named Joseph, and he has a portrait on the wall. And this is something that I love because this refers back to a movie that nobody talks about in the Coen Brothers filmography without rolling their eyes for no reason, is the Lady Killers remake that they did in 2004. Uh, in that film, Irma P. Hall's character talks about her for former husband, and, and among the other phrases he, she keeps using when he looks at her portrait is he was some kind of man some kind of man uh in both of these films the directors consciously move to close-ups of the portrait and you clearly see that the portrait has changed its expression <laughs> multiple times and i watched that when i i remember when i first saw the film i was like oh my god <laughs> this they they love Preston Sturgis because they are just pulling that even even when they're not making a direct homage, they're still pulling Preston Sturgis into films that nobody even talks about in their filmography. So it was interesting to watch these things being pulled out in even their their forgotten fare. Um, but also the thing that has been pointed out with this film, this is a film about a guy who's trying to make a serious movie, so he wants to go through a serious situation. And the genre that he has excelled in keeps coming back to slap him in the face. <laughs> so the man who wants to be a serious man 
ends up getting tossed around physically in the most slapstick form imaginable. Every scene in this film is specifically designed to mock John. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I get this feeling that by the time we get to the Veronica Lake character, uh, it, it, it almost feels like the whole film is operating on a mode of fate. Um, and the idea of the non-control of your situation and that's a theme that permeates not just the Coens, but other directors who work within an ethereal complex of it's not religion, but it's an idea of something outside of your realm of understanding permeating the actions and decisions of others. Uh, and when we get, as we're going through these depression era scenes, Kathy, they're filmed with stark realism. So, mm-hmm. And not and not every comedy from this era that tackles the depression does that. Lakava did do that with My Man Godfrey. McCary mm-hmm. handles it obviously with Make Way for Tomorrow. But I'm curious to know uh, how do how do not even just your students. How do you receive that information where Sturgis is using serious imagery to connote uh, a commentary on a specific genre because. I get out of this that he's not being insincere with the imagery, but he's also Mm -hmm. not treating it on a pedestal. (laughs) Sure. No, I completely agree with you. And I, uh, with the students, if I show it in the 1930s course, they've already been exposed to documentary photography and some of these other serious films. So hopefully they're also picking up on these clues that uh, here are these things uh, uh, sort of being being used in the same way you'd see them in the newsreels and the same way you'd see them here and there. Yeah. And, so, and I think that like one of the st- one of the starkest ones, it's actually like the score of this film. I don't know how well it's talked about, but this we've got two composers at this helm here. We got Charles Bradshaw and Leo Shulkin, uh, Leo Shukin. And there's a scene where. At this point, the girl, played by Veronica Lake, has started uh, going around on Sullivan's travels with him. And there's a montage of them going through these different uh, hobo encampments. And- oh, the encampments and the sort of sad... I mean, it, it's, a, it's a music that wants you to understand and be sympathetic with. And, you know, it, 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 it's showing people's pain, but resilience. Um, and, and, it, and it switches mood. If you notice, it starts off with this sweeping, lament, lamentable feeling, and then it can move into a light, chipper affair. It almost works like a, a mini symphony in that respect, like an actually like fully out composed. We're listening to uh, a traditional composer giving us a full experience. Um, and what's interesting about it is how the imagery within there is not just filled with depression. It is also filled with small moments of humor. So it is like Sturgis is finding these smaller moments to really capture the, uh, to capture the humanity that dwells with even the direst of circumstances. Um, and I feel like, there's an extension to this point, to this movie in general, actually, with Nomadland, which came out this year uh, by Chloe Zhao, 
um, which works under a different uh, set of uh, set of guidelines in regards to how it handles the effects of recession. But some of the best moments in Nomadland are not the ones where uh, it's an air of depression over Frances McDormand's head. It actually has a lot to do, to my mind, with her scenes with David Strathairn, where she is flat out like finding a connection, albeit as slight as it's going to be for the moment uh, with this other fellow traveler and these small moments of doing the things that they do in their nomad land encampments. Um, And at this point, let's talk a little bit about Veronica Lake here because she's playing into the role of aspiring actress who doesn't make it in Hollywood. And her opening scene has a, has a, patter back and forth of dialogue that has permeated our discussive culture within the last four years of irresponsible behavior by men in Hollywood, the quote unquote sitting on a producer's lap uh, motif that is known in show business has never not been uh, talked about in movies on its face. But Sturgis seems to be writing a character in the girl that is more aware of her her role in it and also her disdain for it um Mm -hmm. i don't i was curious how you've received that kind of scene today because i receive it as a person looking at the stuff that's happened the last four years and going like it's interesting how this scene plays out because it's not well well, i i i love the fact that that sturgis could get it past the censors that he could write it in a way that on the face of it didn't, you know, I mean, could get it past the Hayes office, but that speaks to us, you know, we recognize it so much as the, ah, the continuing contemporary, you know, problem that's still with us. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, about sort of throwaway people and the unfair, uh, um, uh, the unfair conditions that face uh, 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 women in a, in a very patriarchal Indi- uh, yeah, industry. Uh, mean, yeah. mean, business yeah yeah so. it's it's very um it's it's very very uh slyly written to give her strength um mm-hmm. and um now the perception of that strength may not jive with every audience member today like uh, people around my age range but i would encourage people when watching it that like if you look at this as a stepping stone process Sturgis is Sturgis and Lake together. I'll put them in the same, even though they didn't like each other on set, whatever I'm going to put them in this collaboration zone together. They are creating Mm -hmm. a character that has the awareness about her of how the world works. And in that time period, in that moment, she's aware of all she can do about it at this time. Um, Mm -hmm. And she, (laughs) I also love the fact that she's trying to look desperately for Lubitsch, (laughs) which I'm not sure. Maybe you might know more about this because I know you're doing a little bit of you're dipping your toe into the research of Lubitsch. Um, was he he was gone from Paramount by this point, right? Like in, in terms of helping run that studio, correct? I guess, but you know that's uh, but it's a you know it's a sly tip of the hand to someone who Sturgis could admire and yeah. say, "I'm looking for the best director out there." Who doesn't, you know, I mean, so. Yeah. And I was, I did find it interesting that there's a lot of fun insider baseball. And, and what's good about it is, is that he names a name that is so well known. He's not trying to get nerdy with it like we would today, like where we're just like, well, 
you know, yeah, yeah, you've heard of Sam Raimi, but have you heard of Scott Spiegel or what, you know, like stuff like that. He is tapping into a public consciousness that not everybody in the public is going to know right away, but those who do mm-hmm. get it will be treated to something extra. Um, mm-hmm. Because Lubitsch was, Lubitsch was a, uh, a figure that had his own persona in a Hitchcock fashion where people knew the Lubitsch touch. Um, and mm-hmm. so to have that iconography extend in a pop culture sense, I always love it when pop culture references of their time pop up in these older movies because it is, yeah. it is a it is a a nice reflective slapback at folks who don't like callbacks or references or overt references. And I'm like, I understand that it can get annoying, but understand this has never not happened and it's never going to stop happening. So you may sure. need to get past that pretty quick. Um, and she starts going on the travels with him after she's figured out, she's found out who she is because John steals his own car, <laughs> which I found, I still find very funny because he, he leaves a note. And my wonder is, is that, well, like, did, so just do the, the butlers who come to pick him up, not recognize his own handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> they've worked with him for years <laughs> like um but regardless he gets out she takes her back to his house she pushes him in that swimming pool because rightfully so he's been playing a dirty trick uh and then she he pulls her in and then that's when the romance starts fl- blossoming and flickering about and i appreciate that this romance is built over time it's not automatic like it's even as they're flirting heavily and growing interested in each other, like nothing is solidified really till the end of the film. Um, Mm -hmm. And we also start getting the imagery of them on their journey together, starting with them hopping into these cattle cars, uh, which immediately visually cues back George Clooney popping up into the cattle car and saying, Hey, any of you boys smithies. Um, And so we start getting the blossom of their relationship and also, Watching that Sullivan is suffering for his art, but I don't think it's the way he's, he's not experiencing what he wants to experience. It's a suffering that is only suffering and it's not insightful (laughs) to his artistic pursuits, which I think to me, when I think about artists and filmmakers wanting to immerse themselves in the thing that they're trying to write about, uh, I've had personal experience where I can tell you that that's a bad idea and don't do that. But to see, to see that example being set early on by Sturgis is refreshing to -hmm. know that this is something that we've always been commenting on, even before filmmaking became an art tour art, according to Sarah's. So I think that there, there it's interesting that you show this to younger students and I would be curious to know how many of them take the lessons to heart when they go make their projects versus yeah, versus the ones who don't and end up experiencing a Sullivan adventure of their own, <laughs> uh, which absolutely true, which if I could, if, if any of Kathy's students end up listening to this, if I could expound one thing, um, you're doing fine. Please don't become a hobo in order to write a hobo story. You're doing fine. Sometimes studying with a book is enough in order to gauge that emotional reaction. Then you work with your actors to get to a point of relatability. It doesn't have to be uh, method all the time. I love Daniel Day-Lewis too, but you don't have to be method every time. Um, 
and now he um, and now we're gonna we'll speed along here too because Sullivan eventually winds up in a position where he starts giving out money after he's basically experienced what he's gonna experience, and he's giving out five dollar bills around to the people that he saw suffering the most in that montage, and it's also established that he can't be with Veronica Lake because earlier on we are privy right. to his. Uh, panther woman ex-wife he calls her the panther woman and i was just like well say that's a val luton movie that should have happened <laughs> because we had cat people we had the leopard man but we didn't have panther woman and i and, and i'm kind of retroactively angry at val luton for not doing that before he left rko uh, <laughs> it's fine he made other great movies and uh but so because of this that because she they are not technically divorced they can't right. do they can't have a they can't have a relationship, but they leave each other on these different terms. Sullivan goes out to hand out this money, and then is clobbered by a uh, uh, another hobo, and that hobo who we already know is bad because he's stolen the night before. Yes, ex- stolen stolen Sully's shoes. Exactly. So, so he's been he's been uh, tra- he's been uh, marking this guy for a while. Um, and and pulling off successful cons, but much in a Coen Brothers fashion, you reap what you sow, because this gentleman who steals all the money and clonks him on the head is run over by a train. And through the same amount of fate that you will find in a Coen Brothers movie, that hobo is declared to be the body of John L. Sullivan. Because of the shoes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because of the shoes. Those, 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 those damn shoes. It, it it would have been easier if Werner Herzog was eating them. You know that that would have helped. That would have solved the whole problem. Werner Herzog just should have been here to eat those shoes, and the this ends up leading to Sullivan striking a uh, a railroad official that gets him put in jail, or not jail, I should say, sentenced to the chain gang, and. Sullivan's experience up to this point visually has been immersed in either grime or extreme amounts of bright light to indicate the affluence that he technically lives in. This courtroom scene is pretty remarkable because it almost feels it's not just the fact that he is feeling amnesic from this whole experience, but it's also it's compelling to watch because it almost feels like it's the culmination of everything. He's been feeling his 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 desire to experience hardship has just fully kicked his ass to the point where he can't fully comprehend where he's going to end up, which is in a chain gang. Now, you teach a you teach a course on Depression era as well as cinema. We're all familiar with the obvious example, Fugitive. I'm a fugitive from a chain gang, which is Warner Brothers' big message picture. Right. Um, but there are other films that tackle this in different circumstances, not just prisoner films, but also union films about unions, films about economic mm-hmm. disparity and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think Sturgis does a really darn good job at capturing the same amount of brutality that you find in chain gang. But obviously there's like this tint of it where you're just like, no, this is, this is still a comedic version of it. I think a lot of it has to do with the characters he sticks in it because the, um, uh, 
the the warden is not a the 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 video essay in the Criterion pointed out something interesting that I didn't think about before, which is that he is a he's not written specifically villainous. So it's mm. it's not like a uh, you know I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. If anybody who's never seen it, uh, it's Paul Muni and the the brutality in that movie is stark and upsetting. And especially from a modern context, it rings even more scary than it did even then because we're Mm -hmm. experiencing the same element on a different level. And, um, I do appreciate that Sturgis doesn't skimp out on the horror, but he also doesn't feel too invested in the imagery to where he's Mm going to, he doesn't sit in it for too long. Because he actually re- he doesn't redeem that environment. What he does is clarify the brighter spot that could be in there, theoretically. And it comes mm-hmm. with a scene that I wanted to talk about with you. Because oh, basically in the in the chain gang, he has tried to convince the, the warden here that he is John L. Sullivan. Doesn't believe him, obviously. Amongst the other things, as he's working and trying to figure out a plan of how to be recognized... He uh, gets put in the sweat box and is told, we're going to go to the picture show and I'll make sure I convince him that you can go to the picture show, too. Well, it's it's that sweet. It's that that, that sympathetic, slightly simple minded assistant there that that, as you say, the sort of lightness yeah. that, that that helps. So so is one ally there who also shows him the newspaper eventually. So, um, yeah. yeah. And the. When we get to that scene uh, where they go to a local church. Uh, that, that That's a very emotional scene. So, yeah. Uh, and something to talk about within the context of this film is so it's a it's a southern black church. Um, and as discussed on this show with Laura Leibowitz and other folks, folks. The treatment of African Americans in cinema at this time is a roller coaster of nonsense. Um, and when we discussed it in the realm of Rochester, I should have pointed out that we are talking about a very rare exception. Um, here, though, is another rare exception because uh, while it still carries with it loaded stereotype imagery of. Uh, African-American, religious African-American figures, there is nothing jokey about it. He is not doing it as a joke. It is very sincere. So while the imagery can be perceived as problematic and you should question it, I would encourage you to look into the reception to this scene, and I will do so as best as I can. But first I'll describe the scene. We have the preacher talking about giving this message about looking out for your fellow man and really laying into religious doctrine of a, um, I don't know the exact sect that this is. I'm assuming it's Baptist. Um, but it's again, this other element of laying in a religious angle on a film to expound a morality play, which Sturgis doesn't seem fully believing in the concept of religion here, but he's using it as a tool to lead the audience into this very warm moment. So after their congregation has finished his, finished their services, they are treated to a screening of a film uh, where 
members of the chain gang will be attending to to give somebody less fortunate than yourselves a chance to have some relief. Uh, and during the scene, they play the Disney cartoon Playful Pluto, um, which I found interesting that doing research, uh, uh, Sturgis and Paramount actually had reached out to Warner Brothers and Mary Melodies to do a opening animation sequence for the movie. Um, and that we don't know if it ever got even filmed or uh, produced, period. Um, so seeing a Disney cartoon in here, if they had gotten the Merry Melodies guys to do it, it would have been interesting to see the actual first instance of Warner Brothers and Disney in the same film because <laughs> obviously we don't really get that until Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, but they are playing the playful Pluto cartoon, and Sullivan, who has been this upright uh, traditionalist of the art and not the pandering form of entertainment, finds himself laughing at this Pluto cartoon. And he asks a very important question. Am I laughing? (laughs) Uh, Which I think really lays into the theme of this entire film of art versus entertainment, which I think the two can both be lumped together and also separated depending on who wants to make what argument. I will, Kathy, I'll ask this. Have you, have you ever spoken to your students in regards to the ideas of what we're dealing with today with the, the dispersed, the, the dispersed attitudes when it comes to filmmakers who are wanting a more diverse palette versus the blockbusters that we see today? Sure. I mostly deal with history, so we don't get to talk about contemporary matters that much, but it comes around to that. And both I want to enlighten uh, those who think just blockbusters are great about um, what, how that skews an industry and how that makes what they want to do uh, with their own films, it makes it harder for them. So I very much am sort of embed that in my history courses about what the sort of rise of blockbusters in the late 70s did to sort of sh- shift the whole industry uh, uh, and, and how yet my students still believe in independent cinema, you know, and that's all what they want to make. They want to be, you know, young auteurs making their own things. And uh, and yet they love blockbusters. And I uh, so it, it's mostly that I just try to show them how the how the industry has taken the one and, and barely quashed the other. But then we talk about the tech, the the new opportunities for streaming. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, 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 you know, HBO and Amazon. And so these other ways. So if in part. I try to say it's it's never nothing is ever static. Things are always changing. Uh, but that indeed what they dearly want artistically just because they want it doesn't mean that the world is going to give it to them. Uh, uh, you know, what I mean, that the system is here to, give it to them. And yet I want them to think that uh, the technology and culture are always changing systems. So uh, always on the one hand, setting up new roadblocks, but on the other hand, um, uh, tearing down 
uh, uh, certainties yeah. that it's always yeah. going to be this way. And so. creating new avenues, too. It's, it's, it's a constant struggle for yeah. me being a theater hound. When I look at the argument that we see constantly debated on Twitter where Marvel fans snipe at Scorsese fans and Scorsese fans snipe oh, yeah. back... And oh, I please. and I and I don't mean to harp on it for anybody listening, but I under I, I would ask you to understand that this has been the most stark example that I've seen come through the pipeline when talking about this subject. I don't think anybody's trying to take anything away from the other person, but I feel like there's a defensive attitude you take on social media to purport that rather than to actually dissect like okay what is it that you are wanting as an audience member and also how do we track what an independent film is doing on streaming and how do we gauge that success i'm not fully aware of it so i'm not going to claim to be an expert on it i'm only going off of how we as a weekly podcast with real nerds go to the movies each week there's a determinant factor if there's a superhero movie we're going to want to talk about it like we're doing Zack snyder's justice league this week but there's a month period where there's nothing in the theaters that we were able to go to. So we are relying on the, 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 the more traditional studio fair that once was. So like we did a review on Judas and the black Messiah, which was a wonderful experience. Um, we did, uh, we watched one night in Miami. Um, we did Willie's wonderland with Nicholas cage, which was uh, quite a disappointment, but, because it's, it, it's him fighting a bunch of animatronic robots, Kathy. It should have been amazing, and it wasn't. And I, and, I, and I don't know what I want from the world anymore. But And the so the idea of Sullivan sitting in this theater and understanding that he has the same culpability in mass entertainment, not just from making it, but enjoying it, is a very... It, it's, it can be perceived as a slap in the face to artistic intent. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as he's realizing the balance. He's realizing yeah. where the balance is going to lie. Um, oh, exactly. He's not saying he's never going to, he's not going to say, don't, don't make artistic films. Don't make political films. He's saying there needs to be room for both. Mm-hmm. And I think there that, are all kinds, exactly. all kinds. You can't just be one. You can't just be the other. Yeah. The so. absolutism in any form is, is a detriment. And, the, and it ex- it's an argument that extends even beyond cinema. And this one, I feel like Sullivan's travels is a film that I would encourage people on both sides of that aisle when it comes to that debate to watch. Yeah. And also with the scene, well, I'll talk about the reception of it in terms of how it treats African-Americans in it, because Uh, I'm always interested when these things come up because um, I am not an expert in this, but the, uh, uh, the playful Pluto cartoon playing in the church, um, there was a response uh, written by the secretary of the NAACP, Walter White. Um, He wrote to Sturgis. I want to congratulate and thank you for the church sequence in Sullivan's travels. This is one of the most moving scenes I've seen in a moving picture for a long time. But I am particularly grateful to you, as you are my, uh, you are a, a number of my friends, both white and colored, for the dignified and decent treatment of Negroes in this scene. I was in Hollywood recently, and I am here to, and I am to return there soon for conferences with production heads, writers, directors actors and actresses in an effort to induce broader and more decent picturization 
of the Negro instead of limiting him to menial or comic roles. The sequence in Sullivan's Travels is a step in that direction, and I want you to know how grateful we are. Um, and also, apologies if anybody had me an issue saying uh, saying the the word Negro in there. I wanted to say the quote from Walter to make sure that it was expounded as it was written. Um I, I, I appreciate reading that sentiment because it does talk about stepping stones that exist. I am of a generation that feels that we shouldn't even need a stepping stone to begin with. It should be granted. Um, but I've also had to learn over time about how these barriers were broken in the most interesting ways. Um, talking about it in regards to Jack Benny was has been my best go-to because it is such a rare beacon there, but you even mm. see Sturgis doing this. You see other yeah. filmmakers tackling this to the point where, you know, we, we aren't, we aren't anywhere close to where we need to be, but we're, but we have, there have been strides made in time. Uh, and Sturgis is at that forefront. And what's more, the spark that Sullivan feels fuels him further to get, I need to get back to Hollywood, which by the way, he keeps getting back to Hollywood every time he tries to hitch a ride outside of Hollywood. It's this circle, this circle of fate, bringing him right back to where he doesn't want to be. And now that he wants to, now now he wants to be, and now he can't get there. And so the way I love this trick, this is a great trick because he decides I'm going to confess to the warden and get a bunch of publicity for confessing to murder. (laughs) And I'm going to, and not only that, I'm going to confess to the murder of myself. (laughs) It's a great, it's a great, it's a great flip. And it does this thing. This is the one thing in the film that still throws me for a loop. When Veronica Lake clearly on set, ready for her job, reads the news of this, you hear a whirly gig sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> clearly out of early sa- sound attempts in comedy silent two reelers as she rushes down to inform the other studio heads of what's just happened. Um, it's not, it's not a bad scene. It's not even cheesy. I just takes me back for a second. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. Sound effects. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and then by the time we get to the conclusion, it's very, very clear that Sullivan's experience has changed him. And but the studio heads are now suddenly all a go for the uh, for the production of Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and and, and I want to explain for a, a, a modern audience why that is because they see the monetary value in Sullivan's struggles, <laughs> they do not see the artistic intent. Um, but and it shows the fluidity and also the flip floppiness that Hollywood executives can have when they're deciding what they want to put on their slate and what they want to pay attention to. And Sullivan's like, no, I'm I, I can't I can't make a brother of art thou. And they're like, I, I, I do sympathize with the with the executives in that respect because their head is now spin spun a completely 360 going like, wait, 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 what? Exactly. You, we you just were went. So determined. We just yes. we just went through this, John. <laughs> like you can't. What? No. And he goes, no. I've learned that. I've learned that not everybody wants to wallow in that misery and that despair. People are. People will need a good laugh. And I wanted to pull up the exact line because it's a. Uh, uh, it's it's a wonderful line that. Um, 
I guess I didn't have it here. I'll tell you what, guys. Instead of me trying to find the line and not saying it the way Joel McRae will, I will put in, in this edit, the actual scene. Sorry to disappoint you. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Yes, and I say it with some embarrassment, but I don't want to make old brother where art thou. You don't want to make old brother where art thou? No, and I say it with some embarrassment. I want to make a comedy. You say it with some embarrassment? He doesn't want to make a brother Roth now. He wants to make a comedy. He don't mean that, boss. He's still a little stir-crazy. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, no, I'm not. You're joking, aren't you, Sully? It's in bad taste, but it's a joke. No. But it's had more publicity than the Johnstown flood. What are we going to do with all that publicity? Oh, brother. Why don't you want to make old brother where art thou, Sully? Well, in the first place, I'm too happy to make old brother where art thou. In the second place, I haven't suffered enough to make old brother where art thou. You haven't suffered enough. He hasn't suffered enough? No. But, Sully... And I'll tell you something else. There's a lot to be said for making people laugh. Did you know that's all some people have? It isn't much, but it's better than nothing in this cockeyed caravan. In the scene we've just heard, uh, Sullivan proclaims the, the power of humor. And what you can't hear because it's a podcast, you see a montage of all the different people who have laughed along in his journey. Um, you are seeing the lives that he affected through his humorous attempt to immerse himself in the realities and woes of the Depression. Um, so it ends on this note of hope in in a genre that is being uh, for a genre that is being made fun of while still inspiring the same hope that a message picture does instill at this time, especially given the fact that an ending would have been less stark or realistic at this point. And that's Sullivan's travels. And, and the perception, the reception of this film to me by critics is interesting given the fact of how well his first outings were received as a director, because it seems like folks were not too happy with this, uh, on the critical realm. Um, first off the film was given a pre-screening for critics in December of 1941 on the fourth, by the way, uh, before premiering in Jackson, Tennessee on December 29th, 1941, and then its Hollywood premiere was on February 12th, 1942 at the Los Angeles Paramount Theater. When the film was released, uh, the Office of Censorship declined to approve it for export overseas during wartime. They claimed that the long sequence showing life in a prison chain gang, which is the most objectionable because of the brutality and inhumanity in which its prisoners are treated, uh, would be too much. And this conformed with the office's standing policy of not exporting films that could be used for propaganda purposes by the enemy. So it, similar to like, I mean, obviously, so now they're never going to obviously redo, redo. I'm a fugitive from the chain gang. Anything that would give Germany, Japan or uh, Italy uh, a, a, a visual reason for people to not embrace uh, the values of American democracy they're going to use. And so I do find it interesting because like the scenes are very few and far between. So I think they're literally just looking at it. They're not looking at it from content. They're looking at it from like, no, you it's the footage you have. Like that's the problem. Like it's not, it's not the, the emotional intent. It's the fact that it's visually there. <laughs> um, so I don't like necessarily like, I, I, I have a weird feeling about that, but I'm like, I guess it technically makes sense. Um, 
but it was not a successful venture necessarily for critics. It kind of got a mixed reception. Uh, the New York Times liked it, saying that it was the most brilliant picture yet this year. And the Hollywood Reporter uh, was a little bit less kind, saying that it down to uh, it, it lacked the down to earth quality and sincerity, which made Sturgis's other three pictures a joy to behold. And they felt that Sturgis fails to heed the message that writer Sturgis proves in his script. Laugh- laughter is the thing people want, not social studies. Um, it, it, it did get some reception on the award circuit. It was named as one of the 10 best films of 1941 by the National Board of Review and nominated it as their best picture. So it didn't fully fall through the cracks, but this is a film that seemed to grow over time for people. Modern critics now put this at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 32 modern reviews. Um, and many people call it Sturgis's masterpiece. Others call it one of the finest films about Hollywood ever made or movies ever made. Um, and uh, the reception of Veronica Lake seems to be the standout to the point where the marketing material for this film really leans into Veronica Lake, like really leans into her imagery. Um, which I mean, I get it. Totally fair. <laughs> uh, and and home video wise, you can now get this on Criterion. The Blu-ray that they put out is a fantastic, stunning transfer. This film was selected for the registry in 1990, uh, and the AFI named it and number 61 of the greatest American movies of all time. Uh, the AFI also recognized it as number 39 in the 100 Years, 100 Laughs, number 25 in 100 Cheers, and and the Writers Guild voted the screenplay for Sullivan's Travels as the 29th greatest ever written, as well as the 35th funniest. Um, this film has gone on to influence, amongst other things, the film O Brother or Art Thou, as well as other works in the Coen Brothers uh, canon. I'd argue that the film also influences how you comment on Hollywood, how you comment on the industry itself. I feel like the bad and the beautiful could be lumped into this, but I don't think it counts because the bad and the beautiful, after talking it out with Ryan, my guest, and sussing it out for myself, I think that the bad and the beautiful is is not only, it's commenting on, on heavy big figures, but it doesn't completely throw them under the bus the way Sullivan's travels tends to throw its own hero under the bus. This movie's more self-reflexive and self-aware. The bad and the beautiful is more of a a reflexive exercise that still believes in the power of movies. Whereas this one, I think it still believes in the power of movies, but I think it also likes to openly question how we receive them. Uh mm-hmm. Kathy, uh first of all, thank you for listening to my ramblings and for providing more information for us. Um, about like how people receive this today, being that you are teaching the next generation how to receive these products and giving them that context. It's one, the most important job a person can do into my mind. But number two is that you are kind of giving insight out there to the world of like how a film like Sullivan's travels is received is that, and now I will ask you, is this a film that put aside academics for a second? Is this a film that you'll kick back and watch every so often? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> indeed, I only discovered it um, about the time of uh, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? So it's not one that I had seen, you know, on, on Saturday afternoon TV as a kid. Yeah. So, uh, but I find it so 
uh, I, I find it fresh and funny and, you know, uh, uh, eminently watchable. So, yeah. And then I would I would ask as a follow up to it, um, are there any films within this realm of 30s era depression cinema that may not hit the same mark as Sullivan's travels on a content level, but also just in general that you would recommend to our listeners um, to check out if they want to get a deeper insight into how the era was portrayed on screen. Oh, oh gosh. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Well, that's, I love pre-code film. So, you know, that's uh, I, I will watch, I will watch anything, you know, made up to about 1934. Um, uh, one that um, actually uh, the fellow who used to introduce films on Turner Classic Movies, um, uh, bless his heart, he's gone now. Oh, uh, Bob Osborne. He, thank you. Bob, yeah. Robert Osborne uh, was doing a personal appearance tour and he came to Austin and an undergraduate of mine said, oh, we must go see him. And uh, we did. And he the underrated forgotten classic that he showed that was so fabulous. It's Walter Houston. And oh my gosh, it's a 1935. Is it Gabriel over the white house? Oh, that's a marvelous one, but this is another one that doesn't have that much to do with the depression, but more about great acting of, I mean, uh, of the 1930s. Um, I will remember and send it to you. How about that? You've caught caught me unaware. No, no, it's yeah. it's my bad. I should have sent this question in advance, <laughs> but but it's fun. no, but it's fine though because like you you bringing up pre code cinema, I find uh, absolutely essential. We talked about um, Public Enemy and Little Caesar in a double bill back to back, and listening to, listening to how people describe the reception to those movies. Uh, at the at their time, and also the mm-hmm. relatability of the gangster figure for many people in that era, well, and you pointed it out of just like, well, we're we're gonna try every book we can or trick in the book we can to get people back in the movie, so we bring them these over the top audacious figures that are our lead heroes. Um, like one that I've rec- I've started recommending to people after watching it for the first time is Night Nurse with Barbara Stanwyck because it is. Oh. It is, uh, it sort of could be a horror movie, except it's not. It's very much uh, uh, a very seedy-laden drama that is mostly front-loaded with sexual imagery until the back half of the movie. And then it introduces Clark Gable as a murderous chauffeur who's abusing children. It's, it's, if, you're, if you're looking for a lot of imagery that you've had set in your mind with golden age Hollywood to be upended. All you need to do is look at Clark Gable being like the t- most terrible. Yeah. Like I, it's, it's insane. I love the movie. Um, uh, Barbara Stanwyck is amazing. We, I show baby face in class. It's kind of a, the ultimate uh, uh, pre-code, you know, bad girl sleeps her, her way to the top. But I also like, Joan Crawford in Possessed, again, with Clark Gable. Uh, I, I happen to be intrigued by Norma Shearer. Uh, <laughs> but but there, there, there's lots of films. I apologize for the, so the oh, names no. that I'm pulling out today. But, it's totally uh, fine. Actually, what I can do is in the show's liner notes, I can uh, if you come up with the titles and you send them to me, I can put them in the show liner uh, notes. And then so people cool. will be able to check out these films as well. 
Um, Kathy, thank you for sitting down and chatting with me for uh, a, cha- a talk about Sullivan's travels really quickly. Can you uh, not only tell people where they can find your work, but also tell us what you have coming up if um, if you've got something to uh, let us know about? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Thank you. So, well, luckily, most everything I've done is available either on Amazon or eBay, depending on how much you want to pay for it. Um, uh, the Jack Benny uh, series, uh, script series continues. There will be volume two and volume three, hopefully, out in the uh, next six to nine months. To continue that, I'm working on a number of projects going back to my interest in silent film. Uh, One is a history of uh, some film productions that were made down in San Antonio in 1910 and 1911, very early Westerns. Oh, really? One real, uh, but shot in what was supposed to be very authentic locations. And it's a fascinating case study of very early filmmaking. And the star of the Westerns was... Where's my picture? Uh, was uh, the lead cowboy was this fellow, Francis Ford, who is older brother by 12 years of John Ford. <laughs> and I he's a totally forgotten, very important figure in early Hollywood history of the nickel area era and up to about 1918. He uh, went uh, uh, when John Ford, Jack Feeney, was a high school graduate, 18 years old. He hardly knows this 12-year older brother who left home much earlier, but he writes to him out in California and says, Dear Brother Francis, um, uh, I'm, I love, could I please have an unpaid internship with you this summer before I go off to college? And uh, Jack goes west in the summer of 1914 while Francis Ford and his partner Grace Cunard are inventing the... Um, Cliffhanger cereal. What? <laughs> they were they were they were kings and queens of the perils of Pauline got a cliffhanger cereals, not perils of Pauline, but the other ones. Um, Jack Ford served as an apprentice and assistant director to his older brother for four years before going off on his own. And this man had an amazing career uh, from King of Hollywood, uh, uh, who hated the studios. So his he tried to go independent, and like everybody who tried to go independent, he loses his shirt. But um, he uh, Francis Ford is in the movies for the next 40 years in like 30 Jack Ford films. So I've fallen in love with uh, uh, these early forgotten stars of film history who had tremendous careers and worked, worked constantly. And it's great fun to um, discover these stories and to want to tell them. I, I, I absolutely agree. And I, and now, and I'm not, a, I, as, as listeners will remember from our searchers episode, I'm not a John Ford fan. However, my, uh, my experience with Ford as I learn more about him is interesting from the, from the perspective of how much stuff he was at the forefront of experiencing. So like what well, he experienced and, in silence. All films. the good, all the good stuff in John Ford actually comes from his brother. And this was supposedly one of the nicest men anyone ever knew. Wow. So yeah, very different. <laughs> so that's, so it's literally like the good twin, bad twin scenario. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, Francis Ford. I need to remember this name, guys. Ah, well, the very funny thing is when I tell people about Francis Ford and they go, is Francis Ford Coppola oh, a connection? No, no. And it turns out yes and no. The only Ooh. yes is that he was this guy was born Francis Feeney. And when he came to New York 
and he got into the Nickelodeon era movies in 1908. Um, Henry Ford had just invented the Model T, released the Model T, and, and had that beautiful script, Ford. Well, this fella had a beautiful script handwriting and he adopted Ford as his last name. Francis Feeney became Francis Ford. When Mr. Coppola's daddy had his son, Mr. Coppola worked at the Flint, Michigan Ford plant and named little Francis Coppola a middle name to honor Henry Ford. So the connection between the two is a car. So <laughs> if you can't have the stories, what you know, what oh. fun is telling any of this without Silly stories. Well, so. you you have put on digital wax a story that I don't think anybody's heard beyond that beyond those borders, and I think now we have a way to get that story out there, Kathy. And that's that's amazing. And also, I want to I want to give the testimonial for your book on Jack Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy. This is a book that, uh, and Kathy and I have oh. I've been vocal about it, and we've all I've all I've already. Told, talked about on To Be or Not To Be High. I'm working on my, writing my own Jack book. Kathy's book was the primary example to understand that there was still a interest in Jack on a, not even just an academic level, but on and the level of writing a book about him because something about Jack that people aren't always aware of is that most of the books written about Jack are written by people in the immediate circle for the most part. So whether it was his manager, Irving Fine, or living Mary via Marsha Bory, or if it was um, Jack and his daughter, Joan with the manuscript that he had left behind and never published. Um, so what Kathy did was take this a step further and actually write a, I don't want to say objective uh, essay. Well, let's just say I used um, uh, my sources uh, were a lot of trade journal stuff and newspaper stuff and my listening to the shows so I wanted to present a story from someone who didn't grow up with Jack Benny. Yeah. That's so I wanted to use other kinds of sources. There is nothing objective in the world. I am a fan of Jack yeah. Benny. <laughs> but I just wanted to show that perhaps in the other books written by people who were close to him, Jack could do no wrong. And Jack had an easy career and everything always flowed relatively smoothly for Jack. And I um, wanted to compliment him on overcoming incredible challenges, getting fired by his first three sponsors. All, you know, I mean, the fact that he had to struggle, but also he was an incredible professional. And it was, it was a pleasure to do all that research and find those things. So. Yeah. And when you read the book, if you guys end up picking up the book after listening to this episode, you'll notice that, Amongst the work Kathy does is also to contextualize for people the importance of radio and its attachment to motion pictures because you would think that the two formats are at war, but much like how television ended up becoming an ally of film with intermediary promotion, radio did exactly that. And what's more, you'd be surprised how many different ways a film would be promoted would be different, especially when it came to Jack's show, when it came to film parodies or just the references to Hollywood as a city and Hollywood as a factory for film were referenced on this show. That's one of the reasons why it's great that all these episodes do exist is because you are getting kind of a cultural study 
of America at that time, uh, specific more so in California, but you get a perspective of different towns depending on if they go on the road. Um, and Kathy extrapolates that in the book to a wonderful degree. And she also extrapolates, which I, this was the revelation to me was the uncomfortability Jack had with television. My assumption oh. until your book was that he moved into it rather gracefully and enjoyed every minute of it. I did not realize that first season was a nightmare for him. <laughs> well, isn't, but that's when we were talking beforehand. That's like the difference between writing a chronology or just presenting a statement of facts and trying to find the stories in it is to find indeed that things are not necessarily easy. Here are the challenges that have to be overcome. The, the critics were vicious about his early attempts at television. And it, again, it's fascinating to see how he uh, changed and eventually thrived by both convincing the critics that he had always been doing the right thing, but also by you know making his show more visual and yeah, things like that. Exactly. And, the, and, and, it's, and it's a wonder to watch how Jack embraces the more visual formats of it because a lot of what folks will actually end up seeing today might be clips of the jacked television show before they even hit the radio show um sure. so thank you again kathy for coming on to the ballyhoo we definitely want you back and i will be keeping in touch with you on how we can bring you back to talk about more films from this era um and this is going to wrap it up for this episode now in the next episode it seems like we are going to be going back to radio territory, but not with Jack. We're going to talk about a, a, a certain detective who ended up closing out the era of radio. His name was Johnny Dollar, and he was one of the two last shows to exist as a long-form drama radio series on CBS Radio before 62 when everything completely died out. And uh, as uh, as said before on the Godzilla episode that will be dropping this the week before this um, in August, I will be conducting the first of the many episodes that will be going into the legacy of Mr. John Houston. Um, we will be discussing another writer director. This one, though, unlike Preston Sturgis, uh, this one had a, a little bit more of a penchant for the insanity <laughs> and uh, will be most fun to discuss this larger than life figure. Uh, but until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 